Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you bring your faith into public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Good morning, Kit. Hey, thanks for tuning in, everyone. We hope that you are all having a very blessed day. You can catch the Bridge Builder Program right here on your favorite Catholic radio station each week at the same time. If you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast or search for The Bridge Builder on your favorite podcast app. Each week on the show, we bring you some great interviews on major issues impacting how we live our faith in public life. We also answer your questions in our mailbag segment. You can send those to us at show at mncatholic.org or contact us on social media. And it wouldn't be The Bridge Builder if we didn't provide you with practical ways that you can start laying the bricks that build the common good. In today's episode, we're talking about topics that allow us to get outside the normal right-left dichotomy in our political discourse. We're going to be joined by Dr. Gladden Pappen in a moment, who's going to share with us a little bit about emerging boundary tensions between church and state, but also some interesting theories about political organization and social organization called corporatism. In our mailbag segment, we're covering a question about an anti-Catholic amendment in Minnesota's Constitution and how a recent Supreme Court ruling could impact Catholic education. Stick around for our bricklayer segment. Following a recent Supreme Court ruling on the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, we have details on what you can do to ask your U.S. Senators to help keep immigrant families together. We're now joined on the line by Dr. Gladden Pappen. He is Assistant Professor of Politics at the University of Dallas. He is Harvard-educated undergraduate and his... uh, doctorate in political theory from Harvard University. He writes frequently on contemporary politics and medieval and modern Catholic political thought. He is editor and co-founder of the very fine journal American Affairs, which examines public policy and political thought. Dr. Pappen, welcome to the Bridge Builder Show. Great to be on the show. Just first of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your decision to focus your academic career on political theory and why you felt the need to found another journal uh, a very fine one called American Affairs. How does that fit into the academic landscape? Well, political theory is a comprehensive discipline. Uh, it allows you to investigate a lot of different trends, both in society, law, the political situation itself, and do so over a long period of time. So it allows you to go really deeply into some of the things that are behind modern political questions. And politics was always of interest to me. So That's eventually what I settled on. American Affairs was founded by myself and Julius Krein. Julius Krein's actually the editor. I'm the the deputy editor of American Affairs in 2017. We felt that if left and right could agree on nothing else, we could at least agree that the 2016 election had shaken up the political spectrum. Seems that pretty much everyone agreed on that. Many on the right had called Trump you know, not very conservative from a sort of fiscal conservative standpoint. He was focused more on maybe even using the government to bring back jobs and things like that, including many talking points which had originally been part of the old left, the old left before the left became more focused on cultural issues and identity politics, things like that, when it was more class-based. And so we wanted to have a place where those issues could be brought up and discussed, hopefully, in an intelligent manner. And here we are three and a half years later. 
Well, I can say it's outstanding, and I'm grateful for the uh, contribution that it's made to the discourse and some very fine articles. And we'll get to one uh, later in our discussion that you wrote about corporatism. But first, I just want to probe a little bit deeper on this idea of Catholic political thought. People might be surprised to hear that there is such a thing as Catholic political thought. How would you describe that? How would you define what Catholic political thought is, and how does it differ from or, or overlap with Catholic social teaching? The Catholic social teaching has really been a part of the Church's modern tradition since Leo XIII, and, ca- and Catholic political thought is fundamentally a part of that. If you look at the compendium on Catholic social teaching, you'll see a lot of fundamentally political themes, the family, the state, the common good. It's definitely a political doctrine, not simply a social one. I only use Catholic political thought to point to some of the more current political flashpoints between the Church uh, and the state. You've written recently about how the historic tensions regarding the boundaries of church and state are re-emerging after the breakdown of what you call the modern settlement, and I, I take that to mean the modern settlement of uh, so-called separation of church and state. But maybe you could say a little bit more about what you mean by that. How are these boundary clashes re-emerging? Describe a little bit more about the modern settlement and why you think that's breaking down. The modern settlement between church and state actually focuses on something that most of us have forgotten about, that period which eventually ended in 1929, in which, you know, for many centuries beforehand, the Pope was actually a temporal ruler and the church had temporal possessions. Now, it's a very strange thing to think about, of course, we still have the Vatican city-state, but the church had a much larger possession, and in the late 19th century, the Italian unification movement occupied that territory and took it away. So for a period which ended in 1929, it was uncertain whether the Church would have that possession. In 1929, the Vatican signed the Lateran Accords with Italy, securing its territory in the Vatican city-state, and after that point, then the Church viewed that it had in perhaps become freed of this baggage, you know, this difficulty in managing land and territory, and could focus on its moral message. Well, now even the Church's moral voice is under attack, and as that voice becomes more under attack, more restricted by the state, or the state seeks ways to restrict it, I think it's highlighting this question of the Church's sovereignty over itself, which has been a little more out of view in recent decades. So you might say that the Church, after the Lateran Pax, maybe ceded its specific authority over temporal affairs, but still exercising a moral authority in the organization of states and political communities and maintained its juridical authority over itself as a society. But what you seem to be implying is that even that narrowly confined understanding of the Church is being attacked because the state is, you know, sees itself as omnicompetent and in, is not willing to confine itself to its own limits and its own understanding, or at least the Church's understanding of that previous settlement. Is that a fair way to describe that? Exactly, and I can give you an example of something that may come down the line uh, in the United States, probably, maybe not, but all bets are off these days. Um The Royal Commission in Australia looked into, when it was looking into the Church's response to its own management of itself in the sex abuse crisis, proposed in its recommendations to the Church that the Church might need to reconsider the notion that priesthood is a permanent mark, 
that becoming a priest is becoming a priest forever, the Royal Commission suggested that this theological view lay behind some of the Church's mismanagement and mistakes, or maybe even said the environment in which abuse could occur. So there you have a modern example of a, a totally secular power not simply you know, edging in on the Church's management of itself, but using that to then make a suggestion about its theological teachings. So the, the tables are—that's just an early indication that the tables are starting to turn on that front. Might the problem, Dr. Pappen, be that, that we've fallen into this idea that Catholicism is just a religion, it's an association of people with like-minded beliefs? One might use even a theological term that it's simply a communion. Uh, but what you're pointing to is that the Church is, and the phrase you use, is a perfect society. It's a has a juridical and hierarchical and canonical structure. It's almost its own community, as opposed to just being an association or a religion within the broader society, as though it were just one actor. Do we need to get back to this idea of the Church as a perfect society, and what do you mean by that specifically? It is a term that can cause some confusion. It, it makes a lot more sense in Latin, um, and you know, or part of the old, as part of the old theological discussions. Perfect society is just a society that's complete and can provide for itself. So I don't think we need to even focus so much on that term so much as the idea that the Church is a juridical body. Of course, everyone knows this. It's very important still in the Church's adjudication of marriages, and anyone who's gotten married in the Church or had other exposure um, to that side of the Church is well aware of it. And these other aspects of the Church, too, that it's a communion, that it's a mystery, that it's the body of Christ, are extremely important. But it's clear Again, no matter what your view is on how the Church has managed or, in some cases, mismanaged itself in recent decades, this juridical element is coming back into view. And clearly, in order for the Church to manage itself well, to govern itself, and now to protect itself from other juridical political entities, it has to recover that understanding. We're speaking with Dr. Gladden Pappen. He is Assistant Professor of Politics at the University of Dallas and Deputy Editor of the very fine journal American Affairs. We're talking about Catholic political thought and new theories of social organization today on the show. Dr. Pappen, might the Augustinian image of the city of God and city of man help perhaps clarify or crystallize this tension or this dynamism between these boundaries between church and state in the sense that the church is truly a city, a political community, a society unto itself, and it can work together with the city of man and inform what the city of man does, but ultimately, in many cases, there's going to be a tension there between the two? Exactly. Um, the, church, the church is the city of God, ultimately, and our tendency in an American context, because of the First Amendment, and the way that we think about religions as just associations that have come together from individuals who just form them, that shapes the way that we talk about churches. We tend to think of them as, obviously not in the case of the Catholic Church, but describing churches in the United States as a whole as these little associations. Some of them are bigger, some of them are smaller, but we don't think of them as political entities or juridical entities. Indeed, the fact that the Church understood itself that way um, was part of the reason why many non-Catholic Americans were suspicious of it in the 19th century, that it was this power that was based elsewhere. But clearly what we're seeing now 
you know, whether in response to the abuse crisis or in other questions of the church's management, it is something very different. I even heard there was an investigation into the movement of pastors and in, in Baptist among Baptist churches who had been accused in one Baptist church of sexual abuse or whatnot to other Baptist churches, and there was an interview in, in the uh, Houston Chronicle, and someone said, you know, we don't have the advantage that the Roman Church has of being centrally organized. Well, very ironic to hear that coming from the outside. Maybe it's something that we should we should think about. Maybe there's need for more supervision, need for a greater understanding of the Church's juridical capacity for managing itself as we confront a lot of different challenges moving forward. I always joke that I'm Catholic because I don't believe in organized religion, so it's always interesting to hear what other people and other faiths think about how supposedly centralized and organized we all are. <laughs> um, right, I mean, right. You see, on, on you see, um, sometimes people expect instinctively, on one sense, that the Church is, because it is centrally organized and juridical, that it will handle all of its own problems. You know, why didn't the Church just immediately swoop in and deal with all forms of, you know, deal with all accusations that were that were made in, in, the, in the 1980s and 1990s? Uh, and then on the other hand, you have this, sometimes the same people who make this argument, the same uh, state attorneys general, for example, who, you know, come after the Church for failing to do this or that. Uh, the same ones also don't want the Church to have any power at all. So the Church, I think, is caught in this this strange dynamic, people expect that it's all-powerful, that it's still basically the Inquisition. And on the other hand, the secular authorities also want to take away from it its power of governing itself. So in a way, it's caught in the middle. But those pressures, those are the pressures, I think, that are highlighting this question again. Dr. Pappen, what are your thoughts on the way in which this question of the pandemic and COVID-19 might be illuminating some of these boundary tensions that you have been discussing? We here in Minnesota had a, a confrontation or a conflict with our governor. He wanted to limit and continue to restrict uh, the public celebration of mass to 10 people or fewer. The bishops of Minnesota ultimately decided that they weren't going to go along with that because they had considered that the public health situation had changed and that we needed to be on at least equal footing with other things like shopping malls and casinos that were opening. Um, and it ultimately came down to a question of jurisdiction and that the church itself has jurisdiction over when uh, we celebrate Mass and make the sacraments available. We should and can work with public health authorities for the common good, but ultimately they don't have say. Is this question of the pandemic illuminating this phenomenon you're discussing as well? It certainly is highlighting that question. In years past, Kenneth regularly treated this question, how should the Church respond to requests from the state during times of pandemic? And there are many discussions of this to standard topic that's discussed in old treatises on ecclesiastical public law. And basically the view of the canonists was that the Church should generally follow the state's injunctions, but directively and not coercively. Obviously, the Church defers to expertise when expertise is presented to it. It's certainly not directly a part of, you know, the spiritual management of the Church to, you know, there's no special charism that bishops have to be able to evaluate pandemics. So obviously, one would turn to the experts on that. But there have been these flashpoints, and those are beginning to highlight this this aspect again, particularly 
you know, as we go forward now that this precedent has been set, that when the state judges that it's time to suspend religious ceremonies or keep them suspended, perhaps even as people are out in the streets, that's where it gets hairy. Obviously, all of the bishops responded very favorably, you know, right as the pandemic was coming on, everything gets shut down, obviously, the bishops are going to suspend church services as well in such an environment. But now the question is how this looks over the next next year or two, and it is certainly another site which is highlighting this question. Shifting gears a moment to some of the work you've done on reintroducing, I think, this topic of corporatism as a social theory and a theory of political organization, not in the sense of supporting corporations or big business, but as a way of social organization. And I think you've highlighted well in your piece for American Affairs on corporatism the challenge we face in what you call the pluralistic competitive political environments, the challenges of which we see as lobbyists for the church on a very daily basis in the sense that the legislature uh, responds uh, directly to corporate lobbying interests and at the same time facilitates elections and creates an election dynamic where the candidates are manufactured to meet consumer preferences and aren't really uh, ordered toward highlighting the common good. And maybe we need to think about new theories. So what is corporatism? How is that something that we've seen in church documents from the past? And what might it look like going forward? I know that's an extended question, so we can stop and, and on various topics and continue to build. No, but it's really related to what we were just talking about, or at least there's a bridge between them. Um, do we view churches and religions as just little associations of uh, a handful of individuals here and there, or are they more like corporate bodies which deserve some sort of public recognition? Obviously, in the American system, religions and other associations, all other forms of private associations, are treated basically the same way. That's why they're all in the First Amendment. You can associate in order to worship God, or you can associate and make a group of accountants. What I think, though, we're, you know, where that is starting to break down or, you know, run up against some problems is it's pretty clear now that there are some public identities which are held sacrosanct and, you know, in which identity is baked into political activism, and there are others where it's not. And on some level, people feel, or a lot of people feel that that's irrational. For example, there's no, you know, unions have some power, even though their membership has been declining, but they're no longer quite the same, you know, public political force as they were, you know, earlier in the 20th century. And so people may feel that their identity as workers or as would-be workers isn't really reflected so much in politics, whereas certain other forms of identity are. So it's just some um, corporatism, again, is a, is, a, is a word that has a lot of different resonances in other contexts. Here it just means there is a kind of, it's, it's used to, to point to this sense of dislocation in political life today, where some identities are an important part of the political process, it's clear that some associations that people have, business associations, lobbying associations, are very powerful behind the scenes. The idea behind corporatism, um, as the Church has talked about it, particularly in the Catholic social teaching tradition, is that in order for all parts of society to work together for the common good, they should be visible and be able to discuss with one another in their corporate identity. So corporate not in the sense of corporations, but in the sense of uh, big groups to which one belongs. This could be religions, 
could be professional associations, could be other other forms of association to the system we have now of kind of competing uh, associations. Some of them are richer, some of them are poorer, some have tons of influence behind the scenes, some are really in tune with the media. The political system seems somehow detached from that uh, and I think is falling victim to that competition. Well, I think you see in the dysfunction in Congress and its inability to be a, a real lawmaking body deferring its work to administrative agencies or the executive branch in our system, it seems power flows to the entities that will use it. At the state legislative level, we're seeing that as well, that state legislatures can't even deal with complex problems and important issues. And when they see they're going to be running into that, they create task forces and commissions and things like that. And those actual, those types of things seem to be what you're talking about when you speak of corporatism is creating entities and agencies and fora where stakeholders of various stripes and representing various groups can come together and talk about issues that affect them or affect that sector. Is that, are those some of the ways that we can make corporatism uh, a reality in politics is through task forces, commissions, reforms of administrative agencies? Well, I have just as much suspicion of, you know, yet another task force as everyone else <laughs> can, um, you know, create it, sometimes creating tasks for task forces and things like that can be a, a way of punting on decision making. And what I'm trying to highlight is, you know, a problem that's been creeping up on both the right and the left in the United States. Now, the right over the last 40 years or so has been basically individualistic in, and has hoped that, you know, by making America more individualistic and more capitalistic, uh, we could have, uh, you know, rising levels of prosperity. Well, what happened was that those who were who were wanting to make a, in many cases, those who wanted to make a lot of money uh, realized that their best case, best way to do that uh, in the 1990s was by getting rid of their domestic labor force. Yeah, you had unions pressuring companies not to do that. But on a national level, there was no uh, no real discussion there. On the left, meanwhile, uh, left, you know, 50 years ago, Democratic Party was party of workers. And that has changed a lot, too. Obviously, they've moved a little bit more toward pushing for identity-based politics at the national level. So you have this kind of disjunction in which causes a situation in which there are you know, political convulsions every few years uh, as one side, which feels that it's not recognized or some group which feels it's not recognized as a part of the political process can kind of erupt and try to force its way back in. Now, there are lots of places in, for example, in administrative agencies where these forms of corporate or you could call it stakeholder representation takes place, shifting the American political system toward uh, a more broad form of stakeholder participation where different groups are organized on a national basis and given political recognition, obviously, that's a bigger that's a bigger task. Traditionally, in a lot of other, you know, a number of other countries, even today, that has happened in the upper chamber of the, of, of the legislature. Obviously, our upper chamber and our lower chamber are organized mostly on a geographical basis. We'll have to think about ways in which people's group membership and their participation in these large political stakeholders and economic stakeholders can receive some political recognition in the future, at least if we want to orient political discussion productively around seeking the common good rather than just competitively in seeking to defeat the other side. 
We've had the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Gladden Papp, an assistant professor of politics at the University of Dallas and deputy editor of the journal American Affairs. Uh, the conversation is a great example of how thinking with the mind of the church uh, can create new opportunities and fresh paths and uh, creative thinking about solving some of our most difficult challenges that doesn't fall into the usual grooves of the right and the left. Dr. Pappen, where can people go to find out more about uh, American Affairs? Do you have a website? We do. That's AmericanAffairsJournal.org. Uh, you can pull that up. We publish quarterly in print and regularly online as well. Outstanding. I can't commend it highly enough. Dr. Pappen, thanks for joining us on the Bridge Builder program today. Thanks a lot. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to dig into our mailbag to hear what questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what's in today's mailbag? Yeah, so in recent weeks, we've heard a lot of discussion, mostly on the national level, surrounding Blaine amendments. This was following the Supreme Court's ruling that states cannot cut religious schools out of programs that provide funding to private education. So one of our listeners wants to know, since Minnesota also has a Blaine Amendment, what impact does the Supreme Court's ruling have on Catholic education here? And Jason, maybe you could give us a quick history of what is a Blaine Amendment. So a Blaine Amendment was passed in the late 19th century and added to our to our state constitution when it forbade sectarian aid to private schools, or what's called aid to sectarian schools, which meant at the time Catholic schools, because public schools were functionally Protestant schools. Catholics thought that they should have state funding for their schools, too, and put Catholic kids on equal footing as Protestant kids. And so at the federal level, the Blaine Amendment failed, and it was sponsored by a senator from Maine, James G. Blaine, who has a city in Minnesota named after him. So he was a leader in the Know Nothing Party, which was really rooted in anti-Catholic bigotry and sentiment against immigrants from largely Catholic countries. And so they created this amendment and put it into the state constitution that forbade, quote, sectarian aid. Now, fortunately, our state courts have interpreted it narrowly, but one of the big arguments against school choice programs that opponents have made was that it violate, they violate the state constitution. And what the Supreme Court said is that to the extent that these Blaine amendments are applied in ways that forbid religious schools from participating in public benefit programs, including school choice programs, that that is discriminatory and unconstitutional. So the recent Espinoza case at the Supreme Court was a big blow against historic anti-Catholic bigotry and broke down one of the barriers in many places uh, to enacting school choice programs. In this case, it was the state of Montana, which had struck down a program that gave aid to non-public school students to attend private religious schools through a school choice program. The Montana Blaine Amendment, to the extent it was applied in that way, was struck down. So that was a big win uh, nationally, but also locally for school choice programs. And we continue to work with our partners at Opportunity for All Kids uh, to pass school choice programs here in Minnesota to narrow that achievement gap and help kids escape underperforming public schools and get them into schools that are consistent with their values and provide them with a better education. Great. Thanks for really jumping into that. And uh, before we go, we want to leave our listeners with our bricklayer segment, a practical takeaway. What can they do this week? 
Well, to protect our immigrant families and keep them together, we want to be advocates for recipients of what's called the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, people who came to the United States illegally, but as young persons may not have known any other country besides their time here in the U.S. We want to support them, provide a long-term path to citizenship for them, and we can do that by supporting the DREAM Act of 2019 and encourage our U.S. senators to introduce a companion bill called the American Dream and Promise Act. As Catholics, we affirm the dignity of every human person. The U.S. bishops are urging you to express solidarity with dreamers, and ask the, we ask you that you contact our senators, Senator Tina Smith and Senator Amy Klobuchar, requesting that they support the Bipartisan DREAM Act of 2019 and that they should be also sponsors of a companion bill to H.R. 6, the American Dream and Promise Act. For more information about that, go to justiceforimmigrants.org. That's a, a ministry of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Again, that's justiceforimmigrants.org. And click on Action Alerts under the Take Action tab. Again, justiceforimmigrants.org. That's all the time we have for today, but listeners, you can be part of our mailbag segment. Just send any of your questions or comments to show at mncatholic.org and then tune in to see if we go through those. Or you can also connect with us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Catch up on past episodes of The Bridge Builder for your favorite podcast app or go to mncatholic.org slash podcast. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Cross of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, have a blessed day. Thanks for listening.